Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Returning to my own troubles, even as the flak burst round the gliders caught in the searchlights, I was confident that some of them at least would get through, that the glider pilot regiment was making history, despite disaster, in more ways than one, and proving themselves to be the men I had envisaged. This indeed they did, for while I and my companions were lying helpless on the coast, men in the regiment were carrying out the tasks they had been set, as the accounts which follow amply testify. But by way of introduction, I must explain what they had been briefed to do. One of the major objectives of the operation was the bridge, Ponte Grande, which was of the utmost importance to both the British army and the Italians who were defending Syracuse. It had been planned that six horses should be released at 4,000 feet to land in the fields on either side of the bridge, and thus to capture the bridge from either end. It seems incredible that such a demand should have been made, for it required the pilots to fly four or five miles from 4,000 feet in pitch darkness and to find two fields a couple of acres in extent. Only a pilot can appreciate the immensity of such an order. It is not surprising that only two out of the six reached the target. One of these, piloted by Captain Denham, forced to land downwind, hit the bank of the canal at speed, and part of his load, a Bangalore torpedo, exploded and killed him, his crew and his passengers. Three more were forced to land two miles away. Their stories follow later, and it took some time for their passengers to make their way to the bridge. Glider 133, however, piloted by Staff Sergeant Galpin, DFM, actually managed to land exactly on the target, by the bridge, a remarkable effort of piloting requiring immense tenacity and courage. This is his story as he related it. In order to effect the greatest possible surprise on the enemy defending Syracuse, eight horses, each carrying a platoon of the South Staffordshire Regiment, were instructed to land in a field right on top of the objectives. At the briefing taken by the wing commander of the RAF wing, who were doing the towing for all the horse operations on Sicily, We were told that we would be released at 5,000 feet, one mile out at sea from Capamura di Porco, whence we would glide to the objective five or six miles away and arrive there with plenty of height to spare. Being in free flight, we would be less vulnerable to opposition from the ground defences around the harbour and from ACAC fire of any naval vessels that happened to be in port. We had been told to expect little or no opposition from the ground, but as it turned out, I'm afraid our intelligence was not quite accurate on this point. To my mind, the most valuable information given at the briefing was the course that we were to fly once we had been released from the tug. In my case, without that information, I do not think I could have reached the objective. For all the pilots flying horses, this was to be their first operation, and it was only the fourth time I'd flown solo at night, the last occasion, as first pilot, having been many months before. I cannot say whether all the other pilots were in the same category, but I do know that none of us had many night hours to our credit or had done any night flying for many months. The spirit among the pilots and their air landing troops we were carrying was wonderful. Everybody's main anxiety seemed to be that they might be left behind. I do not think that any of us realised what we were about to undertake, and we treated this operation as just another exercise with a good scrap at the end. As was always the case on the North African airstrips, the takeoff was done in a cloud of red dust. My tug seemed to be in trouble right from the start, but the pilot got her off just at the end of the runway and we set course for Malta. 
After we'd been flying for a few minutes, having gained very little height, I heard over the intercom that the tug pilot was taking us back to the airstrip as his aircraft had developed engine trouble. Immediately, the tug went into a very steep turn as it headed back to the drome and we were taken downwind doing a left-hand circuit. Just as I was about to pull off, I heard with joy that the engine had picked up and that we were setting out on course again. This delay, however, put my glider well behind the others, but we did not mind, realising how near we had been to being out of the show completely. As we left the coast of Africa, it was beginning to get dark. We couldn't see any horses in front of us, but there were a few Wacos in sight. By the time we reached Malta, it was quite dark. So far, the flight had been uneventful and conditions were quite perfect. Leaving Malta, we began to climb, and by the time we had reached Cap Passero, we were at 6,000 feet. Through the intercom, I heard the navigator giving the courses and landmarks to the pilot, and this was a great help, as I knew exactly where we were and how long it would take to reach the objective. Flying up the coast of Sicily, heading for Syracuse, I could see that someone was getting a reception, but so far we had not been detected. Just short of our casting off point, the skipper said he would take us a little nearer to the objective because of the increased wind strength, thus making sure we had enough height. The outline of Cap Mor di Poco was just in front, and below us, when the tug turned to the right, I was given the signal to cast off. Once I'd cast off, it was impossible for either my co-pilot or myself to see anything except the dim outline of Cap Mor di Poco below us. So my co-pilot set the predetermined course on the compass, and we set off hoping for the best. We had been flying for what seemed quite a few minutes when I at last recognised where I was. I'd flown too far north and was over Syracuse itself, so I turned towards where I imagined the objective lay. Very soon I recognised our landing zone, just as depicted on the night map. We were then flying at about 2,000 feet. I was just congratulating myself on having aimed right when a searchlight caught us in its beam and quite a few guns gave us their undivided attention. I took violent evasive action, but failed to shake off the searchlight. And by doing so, I was out at sea again. So I decided to come down low and approach the bridge with a little speed in hand, flying parallel with the canal and river, knowing I would come to the field sooner or later. The searchlight followed my glider right down to the deck level, and as I was crossing the coast, it very kindly showed me exactly where the field lay, lighting up the bridge at the same time. As soon as I saw this, I pulled the nose of the glider up to reduce speed, put on full flap, and flew the aircraft right down to the ground. The glider touched down fairly smoothly, but after it had run a few yards, the nose wheel went into a ditch and broke, and the underpart of the nose was damaged. The pilot's kit and arms were pinned under the nose, but luckily nothing was badly damaged, and the only casualty was the platoon commander, who sprained his ankle. The platoon soon assembled at the rendezvous, and lost no time in setting about the capture of the bridge. Splitting up into two parties, one crossing the river and the canal to attack from the flank, and the other making a frontal attack, in a very short time, we were in complete control of our objective. But where were the other seven gliders? We knew that our glider should have been the last to arrive, and we made every effort to contact any of our own troops in the vicinity. But we found none, and I began to imagine that I'd landed by the wrong bridge. Nothing much happened during the night except that a few Italians were found hiding in the cellar below one of the pillboxes, and the RAF gave Syracuse a good pasting, dropping a chandelier flare right over us. It would have been just too bad if they had demolished the bridge after all our trouble. Round about dawn, the first few of the air landing brigade began to trickle through to us, a few sappers, and I am pleased to say quite a few glider pilots had used their initiative and got through to the bridge as ordered. At 8am, the brigade was due to march through to us on their way to capture Syracuse itself, but there was no sign of them as yet, 
At the same time, we were unaware that the majority of the brigade had been cast off too early and had landed in the sea, and that those who had managed to get on land were held back at several strong points about a mile away. So far, the defenders of Sicily had put in no real attack, but were worrying us with intermittent sniping and machine gun fire. We used some of our precious mortar bombs in an attempt to neutralise the nearest and more troublesome ones, and our efforts were not entirely wasted as firing from those points stopped for some time. By mid-morning, I should say that the forces on the bridge amounted to some 80 men of all branches of the brigade, and again the regiment was very well represented. Before long, the Italians put in a big attack on our position. They completely surrounded us, and the bridge took very heavy mortar fire. Luckily, quite a few of their bombs were falling in the river and canal. Now, of course, it was impossible for any small force to get through to help our hard-pressed band, and unfortunately, there were too few of us to defend the bridge adequately for long. We were attacked from all sides. We were unable to increase our defensive positions in depth, and it was necessary to sit on the bridge, which was the one thing we had to keep intact. Later in the afternoon, our outlying defences were overrun, and the enemy gained a foothold on the bridge itself. It was not long before we ourselves were completely overrun and lost the bridge we had tried so hard to hold. However, a small force gallantly held out in a position near the river mouth until relieved by the 8th Army. So successful were the airborne landings in their disruption of the enemy communications that our captors marched us straight into the advance elements of the 8th Army and we were able to escape, taking some of our guards prisoner in the process. Much to my delight, the enemy had not had time to lay fresh explosive charges on the bridge, and so our success was complete, after all. Thus, a remarkable feat of arms was accomplished, one of the first of its kind in history. I must add a tribute to the Royal Air Force. The courage of Flight Lieutenant Tommy Grant, Royal Air Force, Sergeant Galpin's pilot, must be mentioned, for after the long and extremely hazardous flight, on arriving over the coast, his wing, which had been hit by flak, caught fire, but still, he flew on and delivered the glider to the right spot and at the right height before turning back to his base 400 miles away. Luckily, the fire in his engine was put out and he arrived back safely. His courage in delivering the glider to Sicily and other feats of endurance earned him the Distinguished Service Order and Galpin was awarded the Distinguished Flying Medal. Many were the actions described by glider pilots that night and among them is this extraordinary account by Captain A.F. Boucher Giles, DFC. One of my most vivid memories of the Sicily operation was the air crossing. My glider was one of the first to take off from landing strip F near Sousse in Tunisia, towed by an Albemarle bomber flown by squadron leader Bartram. The day had been scorchingly hot and when we took off at 1900 hours it was necessary to cruise at around 2000 feet for nearly half an hour while the rest of the airlift got into formation. The bumps and air turbulence were so bad that both my second pilot, Sergeant Miller, and myself were soaked with perspiration with the effort of keeping the glider on an even keel, and our telephone intercommunication system broke down within the first ten minutes. After that came the long crossing in the Mediterranean, at a height of 200 feet above the sea, to avoid any danger of the enemy's radio location picking us up. As darkness fell, things became worse due to a heavy storm springing up, the border regiment boys in the back of the glider were very calm and extremely happy, and someone produced a bottle of whisky, which cheered us up all round. At 22.30 hours, we sighted Cape Passero, which was the signal for the turning in run. Gaining height to cast off, we flew in. As I was sitting on the left of the cockpit as first pilot, I got Staff Sergeant Miller to fly the glider for this run-up while I looked out for the cast-off point, which was some two and a half miles short of Cap Mura di Porco. We were subject to spasmodic firing from heavy ACAC guns during the run-up, 
and as we approached the cast-off point at 22.45 hours, there seemed to be a good deal going on in the way of flak and searchlights. Indeed, it was like Blackpool on Illuminations Night, the fireworks party being at our expense. We got caught in a searchlight shortly after casting off at 18,000 feet, and had the utmost difficulty in getting the glider out. Subsequently, I found out that my tug pilot had flown down and shot the searchlight out for me. However, both Miller, who was a tower of strength throughout the whole operation, and I were far too busy to worry about anything but getting the glider down safely. On the landing zone itself below, I could see several aircraft in flames and the crisscross of tracer bullets. It seemed no safe place to land as obviously quite a battle was raging down there. So I simply kept my lift spoilers up and landed a few hundred yards farther on in a field west of the landing zone. It was rather a heavy landing due to the dazzling effects of the searchlight and the fact that there was only a quarter moon and a wind of some considerable strength. We were all a little bruised and shaken, but the only serious injury was to Sergeant Hodge of the Border Regiment. The gun had worked loose in its mooring during the bumpy crossing, and when we landed had slipped forward and dealt him a frightful blow in the back. We came under pretty heavy fire from small arms as we lay still under the wings of the glider for about a quarter of an hour, hoping that a jeep would connect up with us so that we could get the six-pounder away. As nobody, either friend or foe, came to us, we made Staff Sergeant Hodge as comfortable as possible, left one man to guard him, and setting my compass for a night march in the best OTU tradition, Miller and I and the other two Border Regiment boys marched in the direction of the bridge, which was some five miles across country. I will not go into details about our adventures that night, though they were many and varied. A high spot during the night was when we crossed a field of what, on inspection, proved to be small watermelons. We waited in the shadow of a wall, while the RAF did a good job of work bombing Syracuse once more. Then we heard shouts of a large party coming down the road. To our relief, they proved to be English, and to my delight, were a platoon of the 2nd Battalion, South Staffordshire Regiment, whom I knew very well, having trained with them in the past. Their officer had been killed, and I was only too pleased to lead them. We had a few spasmodic fights with Italians, who did not stay to argue, and a few of our people were wounded. As dawn approached, we joined up, in an orchard a mile or so south of the bridge, with another party of troops, who had made their way from the landing zone. Lieutenant Colonel Walsh, OBE, took command as the senior officer present, and we found after a little recce that the bridge itself had been taken and was in the hands of the South Staffordshires. There was a gauntlet of sniping and fairly heavy machine gun fire to run before we could get through, but we made the bridge in two waves, with only one or two casualties. It was now about five o'clock in the morning, and we were a party of some seven officers and 80 other ranks on the bridge. Colonel Walsh proceeded to place his men in defensive positions. This bridge, the Ponte Grande, spans two canals on the south side of Syracuse, and it was of the utmost importance that we should hold it until Montgomery's sea landing force came in from the beaches, in order that the tanks and heavy transport could proceed over it into Syracuse. In the briefing, 500 men had been allowed for this task. We were only 87, so we could see things were going to be a bit tricky, especially as we had only two Bren guns, one 3-inch mortar and one 2-inch mortar, both with very little ammunition, and the usual Sten guns and rifles. Much of the ammunition for these had been used up in the night fighting. The proceedings started comically enough, as a large Italian staff car stopped at the barricade of the bridge, and the officer in charge, resplendent in gold braid and fancy uniform, proceeded haughtily to command the barrier to be lifted. He obviously had no idea that the British had captured the bridge. But a second afterwards, pandemonium was let loose as every single weapon was fired into the wretched car. The prisoners were put in the blockhouse on the bridge, and all settled down as before. As the sun rose in the sky, it quickly became apparent that we were to be attacked in some strength. 
The Italians, keeping, as was their custom, at a very healthy distance, were bringing up lorry-borne troops from Syracuse. We were heavily mortared and shelled by a small field gun, which made a direct hit on the blockhouse on the bridge, killing all the prisoners therein. I was myself given command of the glider pilots and some four or five others, amounting to some twenty men, to hold the south bank of the southernmost canal. This canal led straight into the sea, and the only cover was actually on the bank. This was fortunate in a way, because the Italians so outnumbered us that if they had had the courage to come in as good German infantry would undoubtedly have done, they would have overrun us by sheer weight of numbers alone. The greatest difficulty was to keep the men from expending all their ammunition, as we did not know how many hours we should have to hold the bridge until Monty's forces came up. However, early direct hits wiped out both Bren guns and annihilated the crews. The second-in-command, Major Beasley Royal Engineers, came over to my side of the canal and was unfortunately killed by a burst of machine gun fire, which also killed one of my staff sergeants and incidentally put a bullet through my pack and knocked my rifle out of my hand. Things were getting pretty grim, and we were by now suffering quite a lot of casualties. We had no machine guns and very small supplies of ammunition, so we could not easily put in a counterattack. Had we been able to do so, I feel the Italians would have melted away with shrieks of terror. As it was, all we could do was occasionally to knock off one or two of the bolder ones when they showed themselves within reasonable range. But as they were in excellent cover and extremely cautious, this was not easy. The morning had its comic moments. Some of the wags among our party scoured the road leading up from the beaches for signs of dust that would mark the progress of the sea landing troops, calling out, Sister Anne! Sister Anne! Do you see anyone coming? I remember Lieutenant Dale of the glider pilot regiment climbing a tree for the same purpose, but having quickly to scramble down again as the bark of the tree was ripped away just above his hands with a burst of machine gun fire. Unfortunately, this sort of thing could not go on indefinitely, and by a quarter to three things were looking pretty bad as the enemy had been able to enfilade the north bank of the canal and some of the South Staffordshires had been killed in the water trying to cross to my side. The rest were overrun and taken prisoner as they were without any ammunition at all. My own little party had now been reduced to some 13 men, several of whom were wounded, and to avoid the enfilade and grenades which the now emboldened Italians were throwing in considerable quantities, we took cover in a small dry ditch to the south of the canal bank, and here we held on for another half hour or so, several attempts to rush us being stopped. It was a bitter blow to have to surrender eventually, especially to the Italians, but I could see no other course as we were now entirely without ammunition, and our ditch provided no cover. We had no machine guns to cover us for a bayonet charge, and had we made such a charge, we should have been wiped out within a few seconds, for by now the Italians had at least half a dozen machine guns firing at point-blank range, the nearest some 40 yards away. However, our captors treated us, rather to our surprise, quite kindly, disarming us only and not taking the men's personal possessions, giving us water for our wounded and allowing us to dress their wounds before marching the rest of us off to the woods, under heavy guard led by a pompous little man, with a coil of hangman's rope round his shoulders. I did not like him. We all knew that, with any luck, all our party of thirty-odd men could escape quite easily, and this proved to be so when, after half an hour's march, we met a fighting patrol of the Northamptonshire Regiment. They immediately opened fire on our Italian guards, who were speedily put out of action and disarmed. After a brief spell for mutual congratulations, we returned to the bridge to find that this had, in our absence, been recaptured by troops of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, who had come up from the beaches. The Italians, to judge by the numbers of their dead, who now littered the bridge itself and surrounds, had paid a very high price for their half hour or so of triumph.
Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus.